Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Weekly Dispatch for the 17th through the 24th of November. It's Sean. I'm still here in the city that never sleeps, which I think is still New York. I'm not sure if Vegas has taken that title yet. But anyway, we've got a good amount of news to cover. Fortunately, the holidays are right around the corner to distract us from the issues at hand. But so long as you're here and you want to know, I'll tell you. And this is perfect for when you're sitting around talking to your drunk uncle at Thanksgiving at the table with Aunt Vicky, and they just want to get after it with you. So there's much that's out there I'd rather see in the news. Candles. When is it too early to take the ugly sweaters out, unless that's your style year-round? What does active law mean in New York City? Why can't you have your dogs there? More so... Why are pit bulls still discriminated against here? Where can I watch The Mandalorian? Because I've tried to, trust me, for now a week, and my computer keeps giving me this error code 83 anytime I want to take the Disney Plus app and then transfer it over to my Apple TV because I have like an old generation one and the Disney app's not loaded. Don't even get me started on it. Why are shoes today so ugly, these giant boat-looking things? And who is an operator? No, seriously, who is an operator. Recent polls suggest that operators are literally anyone nowadays. Also in the news with the Army, recent polls suggest that those great commercials the Army has been making, especially showing off organizations like 375, ODAs, and this Avenger-style assembly thing are doing great with individuals interested in joining, but awful with moms. Ma! Come on, Ma! I want to join! Our podcast is sponsored by Paragon Recovery. Check out their website and use the code CRONUS to get some sweet savings on their recovery products. Keeping you in the fight longer, we've got Christmas coming up, and it's the same time this year as Hanukkah. So this year, if you need a bunch of gifts for the family for that one day or eight gifts for eight crazy nights, check them out with Flame On or pair it with a pair of socks, stickers, products to get ready for going to ranger school in the winter god i don't envy you guys i was a summer ranger i don't know how people went through in the winter my dad went through in the winter much harder individual than i am really this is just a plug for the shit that we've got on our website that with our great sponsor so use the holidays bye 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 for those of you that are new to this podcast Welcome. Welcome to Cronus Fit. A uh, quick recap, though, of who we are and what we do. I'm Sean. Uh, introduce myself at the top of the hour. Bobby and I founded this nonprofit back in 2017, really wanted to make fitness accessible to everyone who wanted it so that great soldiers and rangers in the armed forces could never say they were unsuccessful because they didn't know how to prepare for schools like Ranger or selections like RASP or SFAS. In the last year, we've made some four-cost programs specific to more advanced purposes like your strength, uh, running, more advanced conditioning, as well as expanded our product line. As a result of this and the awesome athletes who now make up the Cronus fam, we've been able to provide some scholarships to great veterans as they transition into the civilian world and pursue the start of a second career, as well as to give back to other veteran organizations or 
humanitarian efforts as storms threaten to destroy many of the coastlines around the world. We started doing this specific podcast as well as Brain Body Bobby to provide another resource for our fam to get the news on a weekly basis, health and science updates for fitness development in the industry, and in general, review life as a veteran, rangers, and soon-to-be doctors, and in a couple years, a lawyer in the world trying to make a difference. If you ever have any questions, just hit us up at hq at or directly through Instagram or Facebook. But with that being said, let's get into this week's worth of news. All right, so we're going to kick it off with the impeachment hearings in this rundown. If you remember, last week we heard from Will Taylor, who is the current acting ambassador to the Ukraine, as well as George Kent, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, and Maria Yovanovitch, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Most of their testimony was met with cheers from one side of the aisle and jeers from the other side specifically on their impression of the original quid pro quo that was termed by the Democrats for the July 25th phone call and request for an investigation into Burisma and the Bidens and other, I don't even know if we can say real investigations into CrowdStrike, but between the United States President uh, Trump and then Ukraine President Zelensky. So anyway, We wrapped up last week. We moved into this week, which was going to be the meat of the Democratic investigation in the House Intelligence Committee. So this week, I'm going to run through the list of everyone we heard from and then kind of break down anything that was of note that's going to come out. Most likely, though, this is going to be voted on before Christmas. And then if it's successful, it will move to the Senate for an actual hearing that will probably take about two weeks, something that President Trump just came out with today in his support uh, to actually get a little bit more transparency, he believes, from the Republican side of the aisle as they can call more witnesses. But this week we heard from Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vindman. He is the top Ukraine specialist on the National Security Council. He was on the call on July 25th. He is also a Purple Heart recipient and a former infantry officer. We heard from Jennifer Williams. She's a foreign service aide to Vice President Pence's office. She was on the call. She and Colonel Vinman were in the office at the same day, excuse me, the office, the Intelligence Committee getting questions from the congressman. Then we had Kurt Volker. He's the former special envoy to Ukraine, one of the three amigos kind of, you know, that coin, that term was coined uh, by the media, but with him and Sondland, uh, and they were tasked by the president to handle Ukraine. We had Tim Morrison, who, if you didn't know, is seven foot one and the former National Security Council aide who heard the July 25th phone call. Gordon Sondland was on. He had like a morning all to himself. He is the former top donor to the Trump inaugural committee. So for a million dollars, you too might one day be an ambassador. Interesting little bit of facts. About 30% of all ambassadors are political appointees, and then 70% come from places like the State Department where you work your way up and through experience get these positions. That's why political appointees typically go to countries which don't have as much of a, let's just say, skill set requirement from a diplomatic standpoint. You don't have to be as poised with international relations. It's more of a figurehead position, but that's why State Department officials typically take on the much harder roles. But Gordon Sondland, ambassador to the UN. We had Laura Cooper, 
She was the deputy assistant secretary at the Defense Department who said the Ukrainians were aware of the freeze on aid, and that was really big, and that Volker was working on a statement with Ukrainians to disavow the election interference as we start moving this timeline closer to September when we said, hey, the Ukrainians are aware of this freeze. They know what it's contingent upon. We should probably smooth this out. Then we had David Hale, the undersecretary of state for political affairs at the State Department, David Holmes, a State Department aide who overheard a f- conversation with Solomon and President Trump in Kiev on the 26th of July, just after the phone call, and then Dr. Hill, who was incredible to listen to. So I watched a lot of the hearings because I'm currently studying for just the last week of class before finals, and thus far, the biggest takeaway has been from the testimony of Dr. Hill, where she charged individuals on the Republican side of the committee to kind of reaffirm a claim that Ukraine was not responsible for the 2016 election interference. Rather, it was Russia. Essentially, the beginning of this investigation was looking for that quid pro quo because no formal investigation was started by the Ukrainian government. We kind of see that there's not really a quote. The emphasis then shifted to bribery, hoping to create enough evidence through circumstantial evidence to charge the president with a high crime or misdemeanor. Uh, The biggest things the Republicans claimed against the Democratic line of questioning, aside from not having any witnesses they themselves tried to bring in to this inquiry, was that at no point did any of these witnesses testify to have direction from the president himself to hold up aid to Ukraine conditioned on an investigation into the Bidens and Burisma. The president said himself he only intended to hold up aid because of his attempt to test this new leader in a country where 70% of their Congress was changed out in the last year as they tried to become less corrupt. And he was strictly referencing corruption and a a larger principle based on a, a query into our election where they've said now that more than one country could try and interfere in a single election. It could not have just been the Russians. They also claim that the release was going to occur because the closing of the fiscal year in October, so just about three and a half weeks after the aid was released, if it was not, then that money would not be around the next year, kind of like you see in the military when you have to really spend those funds to get some great gear. So the funds had to be released, uh, and they had no relationship in temporal proximity to the announcement of the investigation. Then finally, the Ukrainians have come out and directly said through their newly elected President Zelensky in front of 300 reporters, that there was no pressure. So the real question is, if the two individuals who had the call said that it was their intent, their subjective intent, whether objectively it looked differently, that they weren't trying to commit themselves to anything that was even close to related to investigating a political rival for the benefit of President Trump and the release of aid, which was congressionally approved and the DOD approved it, then there really can't be a crime here. So this is what the Democrats have done to reply to those claims, kind of individually going through them and then claiming through the senior officials that testified this week, namely all of them, but more for uh, presentations of fact rather than opinions. They were all aware of some sort of conditionality to the release of funds and Biden's and the Ukrainians are suspected by the GOP release investigation, um, which was not supported by the DNC. So that's kind of where they're at. In the 2016 election, uh, that 
CrowdStrike reference that the president made for corruption, which has kind of led the Republicans to go down a general corruption path with their questioning. Um, the entire intelligence agency, as well as the Department of Defense, has completely denied that. So the Democrats are essentially saying the president didn't care about corruption. The president was self-interested in preserving his legacy and not having it tainted by this investigation, this witch hunt, and referencing a specific element of the conspiracy into interference in our election, which has been proven to be debunked, did not mean that the president was actually looking for a broader corruption investigation into potential individuals in the Ukrainian government that wanted Hillary Clinton to win. So that's kind of the Democratic standpoint. Then the next one we're looking at is saying that, hey, the GOP constantly, uh, you know, has been saying the president is within his right to hold up aid. I mean, after all, we do that to a ton of countries around the world. And the response has been, well, we're not holding up funds and asking to do an investigation into corruption to the other countries that we've provided aid for that aren't even democracies, namely like Saudi Arabia and Egypt. So why is Ukraine so different? And then finally, uh, Mr. Zelensky would not, with so much on the line, uh, and not to embarrass himself in front of his own country, say that he was going to comply with an investigation into a U.S. political rival. So the president of Ukraine wouldn't come out after the fact to say that, no, I felt pressured, I had to do this, because he would lose complete respect from his own countrymen that just elected him on the very principles that he now is completely found himself enwrapped in, and, and, and that's corruption. Now, the Democrats have yet to release the formal charges that they're likely to vote on to move this inquiry to the Senate for an actual trial. If bribery is one, I suspect that if they can't get them on something like bribery, there might be an element of conspiracy to a, another uh, lesser crime. And I'll talk conspiracy in a moment and how that might fit in. And let's see if, while I'm saying this, you guys can kind of start putting the elements that you know in your head together. So let's talk mens rea. It's also known as culpability or an actor's mental state for this conspiracy, which is a crime. And you tell me if there was something there, okay? Well, so just hold on. First of all, conspiracy is one of those like initial crimes. It's separate from complicity and attempt and is essentially an agreement between two or more parties where an overt act or something that is actually physically done uh, has not yet completely occurred uh, to be like a substantial step towards attempt, but it's more in the planning phase and there's just an agreement. We need a hard and fast agreement. Conspiracy is still a crime under section 5.03 of the MPC. An individual has to be purposeful in his conduct, which means President Trump needed to want to and intended to act towards facilitating some sort of a crime, and whether that was bribery through the offer to agree and his intended results uh, needed to be purposeful towards this agreement with President Zelensky being in uh, an investigation being the outcome. Now, on this alone, you might say, yes, they made an agreement into investigating something. What is now harder to prove and where the kicker will likely be for conspiracy is that something has to be the same thing that two parties agreed upon, i.e., President Trump had to explicitly mean the Bidens with Burisma and not mean anything close to corruption or election meddling, just as a hypothetical. 
Uh, and then President Zelensky has to be on the same page with that. So President Zelensky can't think, oh, we're investigating the broader corruption uh, and interference into the 2016 United States elections, and then Donald Trump think something else. So the Democrats are trying to get, a, get around that result uh, with culpability through the use of inferences, uh, significantly from the stake that President Trump would have in getting dirt on the Bidens, or significant business-related interests he might have. And I mean, quote-unquote, doing business here is this experience where he should be aware of a substantial risk and a likelihood that his conduct would result in some suspected investigation on part of the Ukrainians as a favor for this aid. So you might very well hear a person is guilty of conspiracy if with the purpose of promoting or facilitating its commission, he agrees to aid in criminal act. And if you hear that this week, you'll be able to say, I heard that first from Sean at Cronus Fit on the weekly dispatch. So that's kind of like a rundown of where we are at. Expect over the next two weeks, you might hear some formal charges for what the House will vote on. Many of them have been coming on all the news networks saying they're not sure they're gonna vote yes on these articles of impeachment. The Republicans have definitely come out, especially in the Senate side of the House and the Judiciary Committee, and have been very forceful in their condemnation of the current due process they feel President Trump is receiving. And if we go to a trial, we will see the president's counsel get in there, and there will be an actual case to be made. You'll have to have evidence. It will have to be heard, recorded. Everyone's going to have an opportunity. So stay tuned for that over the next couple weeks. One of the things that really upset me this week, though, while I was up to my neck in law books, was watching the individual's go after these fact finders, these witnesses of ours, American citizens who were required and subpoenaed to go to this hearing, but also morally obligated because you have to be nonpartisan when you're working for governmental agencies, just like those of us that have worn the uniform. And they're just doing their job. And they were attacked by both parties. They were a little bit more aggressively questioned, especially when it came to their integrity and their ability to recall information about the president or about their interactions by the Republicans. But I think that's understandable from a certain degree because they're fighting because they feel like for the last three years, the democratically elected president has been under attack and is a member of their party. So there is some team play in here where you, you have to be behind, you know, your captain, you have to be behind your coach. But in general, it got me thinking to just how divisive we've really gotten in the country and some of the things going ahead, which could make elections in the future a little bit more democratic and maybe not have this uh, divisiveness in our house. And what I'm talking about is the Electoral College. The Electoral College was created by our Founding Fathers in the Constitution under Article 2, Section 1, to create a selection of electors to vote for the president and vice president as a compromise to a, a general, more democratic, pure election. And I say democratic because I'll explain uh, the value or lack thereof of your actual vote when we get through the meat of this. The Electoral College consists of 538 electors, and you need 270 votes to win. Much like Risk, which I played every day in my typing class back in middle school, which I'm sure you didn't have typing classes because you guys are all like Jennery, 
Generation E, Dragon Ball Z, Millennials, Rangers. I'm a millennial. I'm just cooler than you because I'm not as young. Anyway, back to risk. Yeah, you have to try to get your soldiers in every single country, and then you just take over. So anyway, of the 270 votes that are needed to win, most states have a winner-take-all system, which means no matter what the breakdown in that state is, if you just win by one vote, you'll get all of the state votes for that election. So that's how you accrue all of these points or Pokemon. If you call them Pokemon in the next election, it's just sounding cooler. Anyway, the drafters wanted the system to create like one final check on the election to ensure our country wasn't stupid and wasn't electing the wrong candidate for our highest office. But this is just mostly a formality. It's pretty self-explanatory stuff, but like I said, a vote is not a vote is not a vote. And we're going to get into that. Because in like 2004, Colorado tried to make votes proportionally based on the state's popular vote, but that was rejected. And that means that however the breakdown in the state went, instead of getting all, I don't know, five, six, seven electoral college votes, you would be breaking up those votes by the equal proportion the two candidates received in voting numbers. Because procedurally, after the election every four years, on January 6th at 1 p.m., or 1300 for you super hard-charging operators out there, which is everyone now, the vice president opens the joint session of Congress for the votes from each state in alphabetical order. So Zebulon 5 is the last quadrant to vote. And trust me, guys, it's so frustrating because they've come so far. And its longtime leader, Zoltan, uh, is not happy. So wait for this year's page six reporting. If no candidate receives the required votes, the election for president goes to the House of Representatives, where each state delegation casts one vote for one of the top three contenders. And only two times have elections ever gone to the House, and that was in 1800 and 1824. But, and why I bring this up, for the fifth time in U.S. history, the election for president has had a result in which the president lost the popular vote. Before President Trump lost the popular vote to Secretary Clinton, Vice President Gore uh, lost to President George Bush in the 2000 election, but had 500,000 more votes. One reason why this is now an issue is because many Democrats now, after losing two very popular elections, where most of them are still in their same positions in the House and Senate, have seen a trend in population densities in the U.S., which is most largely focused in urban areas. So back in 2018, Senator Barbara Boxer of California and a Democrat tried to introduce legislation that would give the race for president to the popular vote winner. So that was kind of the first instance we really saw legislation. Under the Constitution, any new bill needs a two-thirds supermajority in the House and Senate and then ratification in 38 states to take effect. Well, that's going to be difficult, especially coming from the Democratic side of the House when 32 states are controlled by Republicans. And then we obviously don't have two-thirds supermajority in either the House or the Senate for either party. So the argument that many are currently making is the population densities of Republicans and Democrats are most iconically and obviously seen in the South, the North, the East, and the West. So it's kind of broken down by region. But generally, uh, the coastal areas like California, uh, the Northwest, and then the Northeast are very Democratic, especially around the big cities. And then smaller states and southern states tend to be Republican. Um, and so with this, it's just trying to say, hey, smaller states we're going we're gonna to tell you your vote is not going to be as much as it was for the Electoral College. 
because instead of having places like New York that has 19 million people, um, where essentially every electoral college vote is, you know, one vote for every 600 and around 80,000 people, you're telling these small states like Wyoming um, that, hey, your three electoral college votes, which are worth one for every 192,000 people, uh, is going to be discounted. So that can be very jarring, especially in the conversation where we talk big state, little state, red state, blue state. Um, and, you know, people don't really want to do that. And, and so you could have a, a measure where it says, hey, that a state will pledge all of its votes to the natural popular vote winner, keeping the Electoral College. So in the case of, say, New York, if New York votes Democratic then next election, but a Republican wins the popular vote, then instead of giving the 29 Electoral College votes to the Democrat, the Republican would get those 29 votes to be in line with a popular United States opinion. Uh, but breaking down just how vastly more votes large states need, especially when those large states happen to be Democratic, uh, we talked about New York. So you get one Electoral College vote for every about 680,000 people. California, it's even worse. It's one vote for every 720,000 people. And then smaller states uh, like Ohio, Oklahoma is one for every 560, then one for every 650. These are in thousands. And then finally, that Wyoming figure where it was one for every 192. So essentially, your vote is not worth as much in a larger state as it is, especially for president with the Electoral College, as it in uh, a smaller state. So many argue that the Electoral College is essential to our democracy, and, and here's why. For starters, our founders never intended to create a pure majority-based democracy. They had the opportunity, and they didn't. They made a careful study of history, much better than mine, because mine goes back to uh, 1776, brother, uh, and found that pure democracy did not work throughout history, and more recently to the memories of those drafters. It was described as if you had two wolves and a lamb voting on what was for dinner, the fair majority can be very tyrannical to the rest of that country, and every single time the lamb's going to be eaten. So this is why we have like a system of checks and balances. It's why Congress is bicameral. Each state gets two senators, and then you know House of Representatives is based on populations uh, and densities in smaller districts. So it's just a way to ensure that smaller states uh, are being represented. In order to win, you can't just have the support from one region of the country. That's to say these electoral college votes aren't just broken up so that if you win just the South, you can be president. Although we've seen recently that generally you can assign where every single state's going to fall. And so you can kind of say geographically now what's going to happen. But the founding fathers didn't want that. Enough votes can't be found in just one reason. The Electoral College is essentially ensuring that one or two states with the majority of the population don't determine the governments for the country. And so that's on uh, the opposite scale now. So now we say, hey, it, just because you're two large states, California and New York, you're not going to determine what the rest of the country has to follow and even with that, that the counter argument could be, why would a smaller population who just happens to live in the interior of the country get to still have that privilege? So you could say because larger states with larger populations should have the right to discount what you, know, you might happen to believe in the middle of America just because 
uh, you're a smaller state is wrong. And then you could say, on the other hand, that now these large population centers have to listen to a very small state kind of minority when it comes to those populations not being uh, as influential as they would otherwise be in a general election. So President Trump, though, in this last election famously won because he went to the Midwest, and that's where this idea of swing states come from because Secretary Clinton believed her votes there were solidly blue. And the problem with the Electoral College is it creates these swing states. Most recently, the famous Florida cases, Pennsylvania and Ohio, majority of elections don't even come close to shifting a state from red to blue or blue to red. Even back in 2004, when they started kind of looking at this after the Bush-Gore election of 2000, individuals saw that in the 10 previous elections, states like Alaska, Utah, Wyoming, Kansas, Oklahoma, and a couple more have voted for Republicans so consistently that they never voted any other. So what would be the point of campaigning, right? States like Colorado, Arizona, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Alabama have only voted for Democrats once in the last 10 elections. So the Electoral College kind of creates conditions where candidates only focus on places like New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida, where votes come down to just a 3% or less difference in that total vote, because that's actually where they make up their points. Candidates are generally pretty even between Republican states and Democratic states heading into the election. It's only a, you know maybe eight or nine states that have the potential to flip based on voting turnout. Visiting non-swing states is really only important because it's the easiest way to secure cash and investment for any future races, big rallies, TV events. And I bring this up because watching, again, these hearings has been super embarrassing. It's embarrassing, for one, because we can't have a single person come across a political aisle to discuss real important topics. If you're from a small state, I see where you'd be concerned. But if we look at the times when the popular vote doesn't match the electoral college vote, I think that can be an argument for why it's unfair. After all, millions of Americans voted for Secretary Clinton over President Trump. So you could say a majority of Americans are now being governed by an individual that fewer voted for, and only because of a system where given more voting power to smaller states is currently acceptable. More so, it's not really an accurate indication of the true political breakdown of a country. Many states may be majority Republican, but their voters aren't unanimously red. Just like states like California and New York, there are millions of GOP supporters. So I'll concede this. Without getting rid of the Electoral College, instead of doing a totality kind of pure democracy vote, if we have some proportionality in assigning votes in the Electoral College to the result of that state just as a start, then we're already on our way to a better representation of those votes and something that we see in the House of Representatives. Because remember, that 538 number is based on the 100 senators plus the population of the House. So more representative of our vote for president will be something that we see in the House of Representatives, which really kind of tells us every couple years the general political identity of their country. So if our votes to run one pillar of the government can be divided politically by that choice, I think a winner-take-all system is a little unfair as far as the Electoral College. Before we get on with some of the other news, uh, there was a really cool thing that I read in a behavioral economics 
and uh, psychology piece uh, as far as my, my criminal research, and, and that's on semantics. Uh, after 9-11, we started calling everyone who ever plotted or acted against the peace-loving democracy of our country a terrorist. We had the war on terror, everyone's a terrorist. The title was essentially shifted to every fighter we encountered internationally, whether he was Al-Qaeda, Taliban, affiliated with Haqqani, or other sects of extremism. But what if in doing so, we made them stronger? And I'll use this to introduce what happened in England in 2005 in the London attacks on 7-7. In those attacks, 56 individuals were killed when bombs went off around commuter uh, public transportation locations and 784 injured. And the British, and not because of any sense of proper etiquette or natural Britishness, no, never called them terrorists. Instead, there was a planned designator for these perpetrators, and that designator was criminal, thug, or bully. The British believed in using the same identifier for the asshole stealing bread from the corner store as the savage who commits real acts of terror um, and kills people, and, and, and in doing so is to minimize and trivialize that guy's actions regardless of a damage. And the reason for this is that calling them criminals or thugs does nothing to elevate their individual status. When we labeled the terrorists, all of their friends, all of their families, the same thing, and then set the world's most powerful force against them, we really legitimized and popularized that cause. So small groups of kids and young adults who might, you know, have kind of just been centered to being a gang in Afghanistan or just some militant sect, uh, or in Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, you name it, the collective Middle East, all of a sudden feel a greater connection to this very glorified title. It elevated the status of smaller groups into collectives and cohesive organizations. And responses like this, even though they're just words, has gone a long way to strengthen these minority groups, even in cases where violence wasn't always something that was commonly found between them. And by criminalizing groups into larger terrorist networks, it really does legitimize a, a global call for jihad. I mean, look what ISIS did. Moreover, groups in general tend to be more violent than an individual simply standing alone. So you put a bunch of people together, obviously, like, you might get a higher tendency for violence out of them. If you're at airborne school, you put a bunch of us together doing nothing, you're going to have rocks being thrown before your airborne instructor even gets back from chow. There's no other way to put it. Groups are violent. Games Workshop's violent. It's where I learned my tactics, obviously. I was a space marine. Little League, super violent. Airborne school, like we said, and clearly the most violent group out there, orchestras. But for realsy reals, it's hard to motivate an individual to do anything without support. And so this is why I bring this up. Why give people a larger friend network? It'd be like saying, we're just going to give you 3 million more followers on the gram than they would otherwise have. That's just for you guys, protein for thought as you head into this week. In a really weird story this week, Prime Minister Netanyahu is in trouble. Israel's Attorney General unveiled three charges against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, which is the first time Israel's Prime Minister has faced indictment into criminal investigation. Netanyahu's charges are the result of three years of investigations which he's taken a very hardened stance against and has used similar statements made by other world leaders. Quote, they couldn't beat us in the polls, so they resort to coups. 
If that sounds familiar, it, it might. Here's another one. It's time to investigate the investigators. Does that sound familiar? Well, if, if you don't figure it out, you know, maybe. But anyway, his charges are for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Imagine that. Breach of trust. That sounds like a moral one. The benefit at the center of the investigation is Netanyahu's favorable coverage that he's received from the Walla News Network, which has been exchanged for money and then access to the president. So essentially getting really favorable news instead of having those that would detract from his success in the country or failure, um, being able to really get a voice out there in the country. Netanyahu wanted favorable coverage over his rivals, and, th and that extended also to print. The prosecution also says that he received gifts from overseas businessmen. We're talking cigars and champagne. Gifts to public servants uh, should not be received ever. So if you've been like a general's aide, you know that there's a, a very strict protocol for when you receive gifts. There's actually a protocol office to make sure that you don't get something uh, just because of your position. Netanyahu's challengers say he is well aware that the grave and complex challenges facing the state of Israel, both in terms of security and in the societal and economic arenas, requires a prime minister able to invest his full time and energy and attention. And for this, they're really right. And what, what's really bad about the fact that it's occurring in Israel, it wasn't long ago that Representative Ilian Omar made a comment in reference to Israel's position with American support being all about the Benjamins and then trying to play down an anti-Semitic sentiment that she might have been harboring. <clears throat> Israel isn't just another country. It is the Jewish homeland. So when its leader does something dealing with corruption and money, especially something like that, which has just been a stereotype for anti-Semitic attacks and the, their legitimization, it's playing into these racist tropes against a larger religion that is globally founded uh, in the Middle East after World War II, and then many millions of Jews live in the United States. So this kind of thing can only be bad, especially when you have a country uh, so close to Middle Eastern uh, anti-Semitic uh, feelings, and then you know those in America, which we've seen kind of grow in the last three years with hate crimes. So this is just something uh, to be aware of. I, I don't know what's going to come of the investigation into Netanyahu, and maybe we'll report on it later, much like, drumroll please, the Afghanistan elections. Guys, it's been two months. We still don't have a winner. The way ahead seems really very bad for the country, where they endure Taliban attacks and threats just to get to the polls, and now they still don't have a president, and protests are preventing the government from recounting and auditing problematic votes in provinces. It does not sound good. The dispute into the results is straight down to the ethnic lines in Afghanistan and is really starting to create doubts towards democracy for the region, which is the last thing that they want with the Taliban trying to be a political party and come back to power. The last election in 2004 ended with a similar draw, but the U.S. and international efforts created this two-part president-CEO system that we've currently got and we talked about a couple weeks ago or it feels like months ago. The solution to the current problem is not going to be the same thing. Afghanistan has come out and said we're not going to repeatedly do this brokered system every time we have a split election, so it needs to go to a runoff. What's worse 
is the current president, Ashraf Ghani, is being criticized in Afghanistan for a prisoner exchange where two Western professors, an American and Australian, were released by the Taliban along with 10 Afghan soldiers. That release was conditioned on the release of three senior Taliban leaders and releasing Anas Haqqani. And that kind of makes Afghans wonder, what the fuck did we just get out of only to deal with this again? Why did we just deal these guys back for for two professors and some soldiers? Anas Haqqani is the brother of the Taliban's deputy. So with the election up in question and this shit getting pulled last week, you can imagine Afghanistan is not a happy place to be. And that trade might have actually only been a move to soften relations between the U.S. and Taliban and then leaving the Afghans to fight that resulting obstacle and future threat. President Trump also reached out to President Ghani and invited him to the White House, a move that President Ghani's adversaries, especially the CEO, Dr. Abdul Abdul, see as premature and offensive when there is no clear winner. Some votes were found to have been recorded months ago before the election, and individuals are just pointing to that being user error. When you collect the fingerprints on bats hides, you, you don't often put in the time date stamp you know, correctly. But I don't see there being any real winner to the Afghan election, especially in the next two to three years when U.S. soldiers will make much less of a footprint in Afghanistan as we continue to draw down. A quick recap. Holy shit. We had Democratic debates this week. And guys, it was only down to 10 people. And in case you missed it, we actually also had former Mayor Bloomberg announce his candidacy, which is just ahead of the Democratic primary. The debate occurred in the midst of all this impeachment stuff. And the coverage on the debate, as well as the questions, didn't really go over the substance of these investigations because they want to try to distance themselves from just being kind of President Trump bashing. The debate wasn't as divided on time allocation as it was in the past where some people only got a couple minutes. Um, Andrew Yang came out and said that he thought it was unfair, but having watched the, the debate, I can say that he got some answers in prior to many more senior political individuals in that room. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, people like Bernie Sanders came out early and said they shouldn't be consumed by President Trump's behavior. Some other candidates said some other things, trying to be funny, you know, kind of adding their own personal little spin on uh, the impeachment inquiry without talking about it, other than Vice President Biden saying, one thing I've learned is Donald Trump does not want to go up against me as the nominee. But in general, 10 candidates entered the debate in Atlanta to focus on Democratic issues, um, things like voter issues for marginalized communities, um, kind of attacking one another for whether they are more reflective of that community and can truly capture voters ahead of the election. This is where we talk about like one candidate, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He's been attacked because he has awful support from the African-American communities that have been polled. Um, but then more strangely, because, you know, that's one side of a, a, a marginalized uh, minority in the country, uh, Pete Buttigieg is gay. He's the only gay candidate out there. And so if he's going to talk about gay rights, uh, LGBTQ plus rights, then he can make the same argument. So right now they're getting kind of petty with who is actually the subject matter expert 
and whether that they're going to get the attention for that. Vice President Biden was attacked, and, and not because of his son, but because this week he announced he doesn't believe in legalizing weed. What? Uh, one thing I still don't understand uh, from another candidate is Tulsi Gabbard. She was there. She's from Hawaii. She, I think she's in the National Guard still. She spent some time in Iraq or Afghanistan. I, I don't remember. Um, but she keeps saying these regime change wars. I don't get I, I feel like grammatically it doesn't make sense. She goes, we need to stop these regime change wars. She keeps saying it. And, and it's referencing Syria, Iraq. I, I guess you could say to an extent Afghanistan when you kicked the Taliban out and tried to put in uh, Hamid Karzai as the first president. But I still don't understand this. Like, it, it just needs another title so it doesn't sound like you're tripping over yourself when you are talking. But it's essentially just saying we need to make an effort to say when we meddle in other governments and create a vacuum for chaos, Tulsi Gabbard is saying Americans are losing in the long term because of the high price we pay through military sacrifice. And, and that's not her denying either the huge civilian cost, but strictly saying as a military officer, she understands when you go to combat, soldiers end up paying the price to Americanize the world. So she makes very good points with getting out of these, and I hate I'm saying this, regime change wars, but I just don't like the word for it because it, it, it's something that you tune your brain off as soon as she starts talking because you don't understand. Senator Klobuchar uh, highlighted some major issues with bringing women to the Oval Office as the Commander-in-Chief, again, attacking Mayor Pete Buttigieg for his laugh, lack of experience and leading just as a mayor, and bringing up whether he would even be allowed on the stage if his same qualifications were there and he was a woman. And then she said, you know, like, name your favorite woman president. So I think that's important. The, the Democratic Party wants to shift itself to a, a more modern party, and you still see a lot of the same white men as their candidates because they test more uh, popularly in places like those swing states. So it's going to be interesting to see where this goes in the next couple weeks. Um, between the women that are running, they have some pretty staunch, uh, staunch, why do I say staunch? I don't even know what that's, staunch. They have some uh, Stark, Tony Stark. They have some big differences my words are not working for me tonight, ladies and gentlemen. But they're, they're different. Um, namely, like Senator Klobuchar doesn't believe in free college for all, where Senator Elizabeth Warren does. Uh, we also heard some stuff about foreign policy and a war on terror, abortion rights. Uh, the best part of the night that I thought of uh, came from Andrew Yang when he talked about introducing term limits and the entire stage went silent. I'm talking dead silent. That is the biggest talking point. Because people who get up there that we talked about uh, last week, you know, these grand hopeful causes which ultimately end in defeat or this glorious failure, all these people have job security in the House or Senate with some minor exceptions. So they can run, make a name for themselves, raise money for the next Senate campaign, and then just stay where they've always been sitting and say, well, I tried and we had a great campaign that just couldn't connect with voters, which is total bullshit. Andrew Yang had a fantastic point about term limits. Not one of the question askers decided to bring that up because I think you could solve a lot of problems. I talked about the Electoral College. How about this for an idea beyond just term limits? If you run for president as the nominee, you have to be changed out of your current role. 
You were a senator. You want to run for president. Now you're a prospective nominee, and you have given your seat up. And, and that raises the stakes. So we don't have people who have no business entering the consideration for president uh, getting out of the race way earlier. And especially for a party like the Democratic Party, which does not have a nominee, we're a year out from an election, and they're still trying to pick through about four front runners. It's really causing a lot of issues because the party just doesn't look like it's going to be able to get itself together. And it's going to be doing a lot of the work for President Trump in the actual general election to come out with targeted ads. Because instead of saying they're going to play nice, you know at some point bad behavior will come out when they realize they're trailing by just one or two percentage points and need to get those more liberal Democrats, more moderate uh, in the case of someone like Senator Klobuchar, or you need to try to radicalize them more, uh, more towards some socialism-type policies with uh, Senator Sanders. <coughs> but I think that just means that if, if we do this, it's going to get us a better opportunity to show who is really committed to making a name uh, as president and making difference. And furthermore, it shows if you raise money for a campaign, you get to keep it. You keep that money when you fail, and then you use it for your next you know, statewide campaign. What I think you should do is when you lose, all that money that you might still have in the campaign has to go back to the donors or a nonprofit. I think the nonprofit should be first when you lose, uh, and then you have to get another job because you're a loser. Uh, you heard that. You are a loser. You lost. Like, Don't join anything like that with these lofty ambitions. If you know you're just wasting American taxpayers' hard-earned money at these events, uh, by not doing your job in the House or the Senate. Okay, finally, uh, we're going to close out on talking some week six of the V3 Ranger prep. The last five weeks introduced you working towards heavier weight, all with the intent of increasing some basic strength before metabolic God metabolic conditioning pieces, uh, which are going to involve heavier resistance moving forward. So now... You can expect heavier lifts in the Metcon, lightweight traditional strength movements focused on hypertrophy, and then longer conditioning. I don't know why I did that. I'm going to keep going. Last five weeks give you a really good idea of your general one rep max. So when we assign those percentages based for your lifts, unless we directly state that poem prescribed weight, you'll have a good idea of where you might stand in the workout. But big news is the rocking. I'm going to say this in English because this is actually really important. Every week we've done a 10-miler. This week we're introducing the first Cronus Fit 20-miler. It's scheduled for Saturday this week, not Thursday. Thursday will be the last day of your week for touching weight for working out. Friday will be dedicated to getting reset ahead of the Saturday ruck. A couple things about a ruck. This gives you a couple days to figure out your trail you're going to go on. On this 20-miler, our, expe our expectation is not that you're going to do 20 miles straight in five to six hours. If you want to break it down to four five-mile pieces or five four-mile pieces, 10, five, four, three, like whatever you want to do, like, and take some rest between that, that's all up to you. Once you get up to about 13 to 15 miles, once you walk straight, it's going to start feeling and pulling on your grit. Physically, you're going to be able to trudge along, but it's kind of emotional. And so it's going to be the most difficult part of getting beyond some of that boredom. I remember doing uh, some rocks where I would literally sit down like every 200 meters from that like 13 to 14 mile range or 15 to 16, considering if I wanted to just say, fuck it, I quit. 
I quit, I quit, I quit, I quit. And I would literally do it for a mile. And I remember doing it and like, you guys would pass. And you're just like, God, why am I being such a baby? Like I was fine an hour ago. Well, after about a mile of this, I, I really just tell myself to stop acting like a little bitch and start walking. And the next thing I know, three miles pass. So that's going to be normal. And one of the things that normalized that and then made it easier to get over was you have to find your why. If you're going to go into a 20 miler and you don't have a why or several whys, it's going to be significantly harder. You can listen to music. That's great. Podcasts. Kernsfit has a very large library now to get your mind off that immediate annoyance with your present condition on the ruck. Another thing, I, I've always found rucks are a great time to reflect on individuals you served with. Excuse me, rangers, uh, soldiers, airmen who, who paid that ultimate price. Thinking about those guys who you knew epitomized that strength, commitment, and resilience you want. Uh, are really great because you know that if they were there, they would get you over that hump. They'd be able to get over that same wall you're hitting. And in that, life is really short. And th those emotions that you get can fuel you to go and do incredible things. And so naturally, you've got to relish that roller coaster and use the energy that you got on that downhill to get beyond like your personal current level of suck. Just embrace it. All right, because um, we've got hundreds of name workouts for the brothers and sisters who have given it their all um, and sacrificed in, in the name of country. And just rucking is another opportunity to, to let them know if that's your personal why, why you haven't forgotten about them. Because if, if you just put some weight on, some miles on the road and think, it's going to be really great for you, for the soul. And I'm just saying out there, that is another way that you can think of getting beyond some of the boredom that you might have in the ruck. Just think about someone great. Another thing you got to think about is nutrition. It's really key. Bring food, plenty of water, electrolyte-based gel or tabs. Um, we're super lucky at Regiment to have Honey Stinger. I still use them and I swear by them for endurance events. Uh, they're kind of the industry go-to because they've gotten out there ahead of large companies that really for the longest time ignored endurance athletes and these extreme distance athletes. They were Colorado-based. They hooked Kernis fit up uh, a year ago for a, a giveaway that we partnered with them with. So I think they're great. Uh, wear boots, obviously. Uh, don't be a weirdo uh, doing this uh, barefoot. We don't, you know, Sergeant Major, he's very hard for doing that, but you don't want to do that because you're going to wear boots when you go to selection. You, you haven't earned that, that barefoot lifestyle yet. Uh, also, don't wear uh, Birkenstocks. I wouldn't recommend that. Bring plenty of uh, socks or moleskin for yourself. Wear sunscreen. Uh, dress appropriately. And then good luck on the rock. So this uh, is the end of the podcast. I hope you guys have a great week. We will follow up uh, next week at some point after Thanksgiving, uh, checking in with what we're thankful for as hopefully the news cycle will be more quiet. We can talk some fun stuff like The Mandalorian uh, episode four or five uh, at that point um, and get on with this fitness. Uh, also, best of luck to the individuals that are heading off to Ranger School after the Thanksgiving break or getting off of that Thanksgiving uh, reset period. You guys are going to crush it. It's going to be a little bit colder down in Benning uh, than usual as we start heading into the winter months. Um, but best of luck, and uh, we'll be rooting for you. Rangers lead the way.